Welcome to Dissecting Education, where we take a spherical look at the education landscape from many vantage points. We're your hosts, Melanie Hicks and Rachel Jones. We're excited you're here with us. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Dissecting Education. This week, we interview Robert Andrew Wagner. He is a writer, teacher, and performer teaching through stories, telling stories through songs. As frontman and chief songwriter and lyricist for The Little Wretches, Wagner rode a wave of notoriety that led the band to the forefront of the underground music scene in Western Pennsylvania and current international success. Wagner is a survivor of cancer, holds a master's degree in instruction and learning, and is an advocate for self-directed learning, democratic schooling, homeschooling, and unschooling. Robert teaches and counsels at-risk teens in the Philadelphia area. All right, so welcome. We are so excited to have you as a guest on the podcast. Um, go ahead and tell us a little bit more about you that wasn't in your bio. Uh, this could take up the entire podcast. <laughs> uh, I, I am a lifelong learner, and I can say that in some ways, you know, my life was saved by education. And, uh, you know, I had a weird teenage period where I was kind of an abandoned child living by myself. But my mother had instilled in me the idea that I was smart and I should get good grades. So I never got into trouble because I managed to show up on the days of tests and the teachers say, you know, we're having a test today. Okay, that's why I'm here. And uh, so I became a good independent learner. I learned how to decode textbooks and so on. And when I did go on to the University of Pittsburgh, they had an experimental program called the Alternative Curriculum based in some ways on the ideas of A.S. Neal, total uh, no rules, do whatever you want, find the people that you want to learn with, create activities, uh, subjective assessment for full 15 credits. So I did that for 30 credits in my freshman year and then became an undergraduate teaching assistant for the next two years. So the self-directed, student-led, independent learning in in a community setting, uh, in, in a group setting, workshop learning, uh, kind of became an expert at that. And I'm also a musician. And every time my musical career kind of went on the wane, went back and took a few more classes. Next thing you know, I got a master's degree and people are asking me to teach and they give you money for it, you know? Weird. <laughs> it's a great thing. It's a great thing to be compensated. Oh, it's it's for the your biggest value. scam in the world, you know? Oh, teachers, they're heroes. Come on. You're surrounded by people who want your approval and you generally know more than they know and they give you money for it. And you're gonna, I would do it for free. But. <laughs> that's the love of education right there. Yeah. That is. So I think that's not in my bio. <laughs> I don't think it is. <laughs> so you mentioned your, your love of music um, and that kind of feeds into education. How has that um, been integrated into the way you approach education? Well, it comes back to the self-directed learning. Uh, you know, I kind of remember when I was in elementary school. I went to a Catholic elementary school, and, uh, you know, all I cared about was wrestling, football, and the Beatles, you know. <laughs> uh, and as far as I know, I just sat there staring out the window all day until we, we dismissed. 
Uh, I think I lear I've learned more from independently pursuing a career in music and from being, when I was in at the university, being involved in like radical political organizations and, and you know, organizing on campus. Uh, I think I, I learned more from doing those things than I did in my actual classes, my formal classes. And then I learned, you know, at the university, you get to choose your instruct instructors. And I did a lot of independent studies uh, where I'll tell you what, these are the books I plan on reading and we'll get together once or twice over the course of the next few months. And I'll tell you what I learned, um, you know, kind of Socratic learning. So, I mean, for me, uh, you know, I've, I've always been in the driver's seat of my learning. And, uh, you know, I guess the buzzword these days is metacognition, learning about learning, thinking about thinking. I've always done that. Um, right. So you're a, definitely a proponent of the kinesthetic, um, experiential learning, right? That's something that you, you as a learner, love um how do you how do you integrate that in as a teacher so are there experiences yeah. that you're able to provide for your students i, I try i try uh, in different in my role as a teacher i've been in different settings uh, two of my favorite uh experiences I, I was employed as what they call a homebound instructor for a school district outside of uh, pittsburgh where uh you know, different teachers are assigned to different students. But I, I got all the kids that had been expelled, most for having brought weapons to school, some for drug violations. And I had a little core of kids, five or six kids that were in, um, you know, the same age range, maybe sixth to ninth grade. And what I was supposed to be doing was mirroring their classroom uh, but you know, that this does not make any sense for these students. So rather than meet with each student one hour a day or five hours a week, I would just drive around in the morning, round them all up in my little car, and we would drive around and I had memberships to the zoo, the science center, the museum. So it's like, okay, are we gonna go to the library? And if so, which library? Are we gonna go to the zoo? Are we gonna go to the science center? Or you know, are we going to go to the Museum of Natural History? Uh, you tell me where we're going to go. And while we're driving, we're going to talk. And when we get there, I'll spend maybe 45 minutes to a half hour with each kid individually. But basically, we're just going to enrich our lives and enrich ourselves as human beings, enjoy each other's company and learn. Right. And uh, uh, now that, that didn't necessarily fly with the official classroom teachers but they'd already wiped their hands of these kids. You know, they, what, they, what the school district hoped when they put these kids in the homebound program is that their parents or grandparents would move to a different school district and find them another school. So these were kids who were so abandoned or so disenfranchised that, yeah, well, if all you're gonna get is five hours of instruction a week, that's good enough for us. Uh, so that was a great experience. And then I, 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 that was in the Pittsburgh area. I live in the, Philadelphia area now, and there was a program, a residential program for at-risk teens. And I was the teacher in the one-room schoolhouse for girls. So I had 14 juvenile delinquent girls, and I pretty much had them from 7.30 in the morning till 3.30 in the afternoon. And 
the director of education, this, they, they had just started this program for girls. And they said, something tells us you're the person that might be able to get this off the ground. And I said, yep, you, right. You got the right person. <laughs> and uh, number one, all the girls were fighters. So, you know, you don't fight if you have a chance to back out of conflict. So we used, instead of just the classroom, we used the entire building as space. And the biggest complaint we had against our program was that when we would have visitors, caseworkers or parole officers would come in and they'd say, Robert, it looks like a homeless shelter in here. All we see is a bunch of girls in blankets. Like, yeah, and they're all reading books and they're all minding their own business. And uh, there's the classroom in there. Some of our activities would be in the classroom. Some of our activities will be in the kitchen. Some of our activities will be outside. But if you feel like being in my activities, you know where to find me. And if you don't feel like being in my activities, go read a book, you know. Um, and, you know, I had, it was, we mixed, we blended ages. So I, I would have kids that were by age in the sixth grade, but by grade level, maybe in the third grade. And I had students that were, you know, 17 or 18 years old that, probably could have tested out a high school if they took the GED. So we're all going to play a different role in this. My expectations for the 11th graders is going to be different than my expectations for the sixth graders. But we're a, we're a community of learners, you know. Uh, and if you're around me, you're going to learn something. Well, and a couple of the things that you, when you were sharing that really stood out. So one of the aspects that is so important, especially for students that I don't love the word non-traditional because I don't know that there's really a, a traditional student left out there, but everyone should be treated, you know, as their, as their own person. But um, especially with those non-traditional students is introducing the aspect of choice. So a lot of times in their life, you know, they don't have a choice. And so just giving them, as you said, you can do this activity or you can read a book. That's such a powerful thing for someone to realize, wow, I have a choice here um, so that they don't feel like they're, they're stuck, right? So that's one of the things that you said. Go ahead. <laughs> Those of you who aren't watching can't see that I'm raising my hand. Um, but uh, are you guys familiar with democratic schooling or Sodbury schools? Have you crossed paths? I know just enough to be dangerous, but share with us um, okay. so those of people in the audience. Yeah. Well, know. on the university level, when I was at the University of Pittsburgh, the program I was in was similar to those. And I, I did my master's research was kind of a historic, what I thought was a historical study of alternative education. But when I did it, you know, this was prior to the internet and a lot of resources that are available now weren't available. But uh, I decided, you know, I wanted to start my own school and looked into it. And then I discovered what are, they go by democratic schools now. Uh, the and even that kind of has a bad connotation. But the three schools that I visited most, there's the Philly Free School in Philadelphia, the Circle School in Harrisburg, and the Highland School in a small rural part of West Virginia. And similar to what I had, the, the, the actual program is governed by the student body. And nobody tells you, there's no compulsory anything. And with, with the students that I have, you know, one of the things I, you know, I fall back on nobody, unless you have a learning disability or some, uh, you know, physical problem, nobody had to teach you how to walk. Nobody had to teach you how to talk. 
And probably up until you hit puberty, you would have an unlimited capacity for language. You could have learned to speak any language on earth, as many languages as there are, you were hardwired to learn them till you were about 12 or 13 years old. You're a natural learner, you're a natural problem solver. Uh, so when you remove compulsion from the picture, most traditional teachers just think, well, if you let the kids do what they want, they won't do anything. Like, that's not really true. Uh, but in these alternative schools, in, in like the Philly Free School or the Circle School, if a student comes in from outside that is not used to having choices, they might choose to do absolutely nothing for two or three months. And they're waiting for you to come in and tell them what to do. And they just won't do it. They refuse. But being bored is an unnatural state for human beings. You're a child. You're a natural learner. You have natural curiosity. You might be refusing to do something as an act of protest. But eventually you'll come around to, I don't like being bored. I'm going to solve the problem of being bored. And in fact, I don't like being alone. I'm going to solve the problem of being alone. So here are people doing something interesting. Let's go see what it is. I want to be included. Uh, and in these non-compulsory environments, there's uh, like the circle school. I have one of their brochures here. They call it practicing life. We're not preparing for something to come later. We're living right now. We're answering the questions that are on our minds. We're pursuing the interests that are on our minds now. Sometimes those interests might go somewhere, sometimes not. Now, now for me, in, in more of a traditional classroom setting, it's hard to do that because the kids are still waiting for me to tell them what to do so they can say, no, I'm not going to do it. Uh, and, you know, we in the field of education, we pat ourselves on the back so much because look what a great school we have. Look how few behavior problems, like all the behavior problems you have are created by your school. So you created it, you solved it, you're not a genius. Uh, there's other ways to do it, which in fact are holistically better for the students. And the data shows the students from these completely open classroom environments, they do just as well on their standardized tests, their entry into colleges. In fact, their entry into elite colleges is uh, slightly higher than in traditional learning environments. Um, right. Well, and not only are you giving them that, that sense of choice and that community building that you talked about, but you're also really allowing them to receive personalized learning. So as you said, you know, they're all different age ranges, which makes it really impossible to teach whole group but that's a great thing because you get to know each student one-to-one, -one, you know what they need, you give them some guidance and facilitate one-on-one -on -one versus try to facilitate something whole group that, that wouldn't necessarily meet the needs of all of your learners, which is key. Yeah, the, the, the system that I'm in now, uh, a couple of the buzzwords that we use, uh, we use metacognition a lot, learning about learning, thinking about thinking. And, uh, you know, in teacher preparation programs, you know, everybody gets that quote about uh, a, a student can only learn what they what the student is ready to learn. And so, oh, we, we have to do our Madeline Hunter anticipatory set to start off our lesson. Um, but that, that kind of misses the point because that's still part of the, I'm going to fill up the empty vessel with my knowledge model. Uh, what, what I think 
in our school setting, they, they use the term neurologic. And we'll often, with the particular community of students I'm working with, we'll have these pulse oximeters that kids will put on their finger and you know, take their blood oxygen level and their pulses. And so here's, here's a student who's looking perfectly normal. He's learned how to modify his behavior so that he fits in and he's acting appropriate. And his pulse is 110 beats per minute. So the truth is he's operating out of his brain stem, not out of his cortex. So how do I get him to get out of that panic mode and that then be prepared to learn? And so if we spend 30 minutes just talking or catching a frisbee or tossing a football or doing some silly game that you know formal educators might frown upon we're trying to get that kid out of his brain stem and into his you know cortex and and when that student is ready to learn 15 minutes of good learning is going to outdo you know 6 hours of sitting there in panic Right. Um, so it's, but, but still, you know, I'm, I'm now trying to follow a curriculum, trying to follow a sequential series of lessons. And that actually hampers me, you know, because the students, they come with questions and I'm, I'm guaranteed they would learn. I'm, I'm certain they would learn more if we just follow, follow that rabbit trail where it leads. And then we're, when we're done, okay, what do you want to learn about now? So I, I have language arts, I have English and social studies, and I tell everybody math is the language of science, you know, math is a language, you got to learn the language, and English, in our, you know, English-speaking culture, English is the language of social studies. Social studies is what it's all about. Even science is all about social studies. We're learning about how to live together, uh, and we're all experts already. We've managed to do it this far, so, uh, so that's, my, that's my thing. Yeah. So, you know, now that you've had some different experiences that, um, you know, a typical teacher may not have who's maybe working in a more traditional classroom or district, what is what are some um, pieces of advice or just small steps that they could take um, to start to introduce more of that kind of open metacognitive learning and not not that they'd have 100% freedom because a lot of teachers don't, but what are some you know, little pieces of advice or little steps that you would you would suggest they start with? I don't even know. I don't even know because one of the things that we've seen, I mean, in my observations, because I don't formally teach in one of the democratic schools, I'm just kind of an outsider at this point. Uh, they have a hard time. It's either all or nothing. You're either free or you're not. And uh, so my, you know, my advice to people coming into the field of education uh, we we tend to be in love with our subject matter when in fact uh, we're always teaching and our the, what we're teaching really has nothing to do with our subject matter. What we're teaching is how we interact with people. When you ask me, well, like little things, and I catch myself all the time uh, because I might be in a room where seven people are talking all at once and what I really want to do is everybody please be quiet i need to hear one person speak this is confusing me and if i'm confused surely somebody else is confused as well um, but how i react to that chaos is part of my instruction it's you know if if i speak 
harshly or speak out a turn to one of my students. I'm the teacher. I'm allowed to say whatever I want and do whatever I want. But that relationship is key to everything. When the students kind of like me a little bit and learn to trust me a little bit, you know, then I can really, really teach them. Um, so it's it's really about relationship building. It's not about instruction. There's nothing, and especially for me, this might be different when you get into the higher level uh, of math or the higher level of science. But there's no there's no essential learning. Um, there there's no fact. It's not we're not in the business of accumulating information anymore. You can find information. It's one click away. So it's how to think about that information, how to make sense of it. Uh, it's, the smart person isn't the one with all the answers. The smart person is the one with the best questions. Um, and, you know, I don't think a lot of subject teachers really kind of get that. And then a lot of us, we get into education. I mean, that's still a fact. When I, you know, 30 years ago when I was in graduate school, when they were talking about, oh, 70 percent of teachers quit within the first three years. I think that that still holds. What's changed? Uh, well, people get into it because they like kids and they love learning and then this isn't what I all I'm doing is uh, behavior and you know I'm, I'm a bean counter I'm counting points and uh, you know but you choose to be in a school like that I would rather work for less money and be in a learning environment where I'm honored as a teacher uh, so when I did my master's research in instruction and learning I predicted, you know, 30 years ago, we're going to have an increase in school choice. I mean, the term school choice didn't yet exist, but I said, we're going to see more alternatives and more homeschooling because this public schooling thing that we have, it's never going to accomplish what it purports to do. Uh, I'm, you know, forgive me, fellow teachers out there, but... I know public school teachers hate this. I'm in favor of school choice. I'm in favor of competition. And I don't believe that one size fits all. And the fact is, you know, I, I teach at-risk kids because they're, they're the kids that I feel like need me the most. But people from poor and working class backgrounds are also the ones that are least likely to take a risk. Uh, they're, they're the parents. That, they're not going to send their kids to an experimental private school. Uh, I'm going to stick my kids... And I, I just want him to sit in his seat and do what he's told. Well, that's never going to work. Uh, so my, my advice is love kids. Remember, you're, you're just part of the community. You're part of a community of learners. You're, you're not the boss. Right. Well, and like you said, I think relationships are key, whether the child is four years old or whether they're an adult learner in college. Making that attempt to get to know them one-on-one -on -one and building that trust and having them understand that you are the facilitator of the learning, you're not the all-knowing person, that, that's key. And that's why I think, you know, as you described your teaching style, you relate, your students relate to you because you establish that. So I think that's a great piece of advice um, and something that sometimes maybe gets lost when teachers, especially new teachers, get focused on all of the content they have to teach and all of the test scores and everything like that. Well, can I throw in one more thing, yeah. my piece of advice? If you have any quit in you, quit now. Don't waste those three years torturing those young people. If you, if you don't have it in your heart, if it's not like a religious calling, go do something else. <laughs> you know, let's not teach our kids how to quit.
<laughs> I love it. So tell us about how, how do you inspire a child to learn? So you're talking about working with some of the most, um, you know, kind of challenging potential students. And you talked a little bit about uh, experiential education and what that looks like when you can pick them up and take them to a museum. But what if you are in a classroom? What if you don't have the carpool to the museum? Like what can, what is the core, the essence of really getting to, to a child's love of learning? How do you turn that on? Yeah, well, that's a little bit of a contradiction. Um, and But it, that comes back to the trust. Um, there, there's a, I think he passed away recently, but there's a, a writer named John Taylor Gatto who writes a lot about, uh, you know, democratic schooling. And he has a little section in his book, The Underground History of American Education. I think I got it here. Uh, but he talks about discipline. Uh, and he takes discipline back to uh, discipleship. You know, like, like if you watch The Karate Kid, you know, Daniel, when he goes to Mr. Miyagi and says, teach me karate, Mr. Miyagi says, yeah, I'll teach you karate, but you got to agree to do whatever I tell you to do. And as soon as you violate that agreement, then we're, I'm not your teacher anymore. Uh, you come to me voluntarily. Now, once I've decided that I'm interested in learning or I want to make my mother happy uh, or I want to get good grades, then I've kind of now I'm voluntarily in that classroom willing to do what that teacher wants to do because I want to make the teacher happy. I want to make my mom happy. I want to get good grades. But if none of that is in play, I have to build that relationship enough for them to one, want to want to impress me, want to make me happy. Uh, you know, and that's relationship driven. Uh, there's a little bit of, you know, and that's where like compulsion even gets in the way a little bit. Uh, you know, if I have students in my room that want to have a personal conversation, I wish I could tell them, look, I don't want to interrupt your conversation. Why don't you guys go to the cafeteria, talk about whatever gossip you're talking about. And when you need me, come on back in the classroom. Okay, when you're ready to learn something, I'm here. Uh, but, I, you know, I can't do that in my setting. Uh, so there's there's a lot of the like cat and mouse. Catch me do, being bad. I refuse to catch you being bad. But that's part of my job. I have to. So, uh, but it comes back to the relationship building, finding out, you know, what is the student interested in? What have they done? What they, do they like doing? And how can I give them a hook? I use the analogy of a snowball. You know, you start with a snowball and you roll it around in the yard and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. When you get to be my age, it's easy to learn because I have so much to connect new information to. I have so much to connect new in experiences to. So uh, the key is to get those younger people to try to connect their new experiences to what they already have and to value and trust what they already have. And in some ways, I have it easier with the rebel kids that are in non-traditional settings because they are not going to just submit to me. They, you know, their experience has told them, I can't necessarily trust adults. I have to think for myself. Oh, you think for yourself? Then we're in the same game. That's good. Uh, whereas it, it puzzles me how kids will just go to a regular public school stand when they're told to stand, sit when they're told to sit, move around when the bell rings. When I was doing my student teaching, the big, you know, at an elite public school, uh, the big question, how many points is this worth? 
Well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you five points every time you tie your shoe. <laughs> They'd be tying their shoes furiously for the next hour so they could earn points. That's not learning. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm about learning and, and a connecting with the student based on the student's prior knowledge, their interests, and whatever you're interested in, I'm interested in it too. You know, I, I can find a way to steer that towards, you know, whatever Pennsylvania, state of Pennsylvania says you're supposed to be learning. Right. Yeah, I do think it's really valuable to, I mean, underlying all of that, right, is the human connection. It's the connection to it, to figuring out what interests them. And then, as you said, steering them towards learning the criteria that, that, you know, you're supposed to learn to check the boxes, but, but basing it in a place that comes from genuine interest, right? Uh, the other thing that I thought was interesting from what you just said, we touched on discipline, right? Discipline is, you know, there's a role for teaching kids self-discipline, like study habits, like time management, like non-procrastination, like, and setting good examples for them. But yet discipline, you know, there's only two places in the world that still require um, permission to go to the bathroom and that's schools and yeah. prisons. Yeah. And so the most classic example of industrial traditional learning is the fact that, that there is literally zero freedom in some of the most basic functions of the human, you know, of your humanness. And that to me is, you know, an, an interesting dichotomy because you'll talk to teachers all the time about classroom management and how do you keep a class of rambunctious kids focused on the learning and, and the ones that need to have quiet, how do they concentrate if there's loud talking going on and how do you engage how do you keep interested those who need to be interacting if you're trying to just teach a lesson and it has to stay quiet? And, and I think that it's this really interesting, uh, you know, task of trying to figure out what is the right amount of example discipline without it being as, as strict and narrow as we have made it in the, in the traditional classroom setting. Yeah. Well, you know, you're, each of us as individual instructors, we're, we're still a part of a bigger picture. So, you know, I, in my school setting, I know how I have a weakness. My, my official, the rule for me is if a student's behavior is making instruction impossible, I need to send them to the resolve room. And then the resolve room counselor will work through that with them. And it's not necessarily punitive, although a lot of the students, their first impulse. But what I want to give the students to do is a chance to regulate themselves first. And I can't teach you. I love to teach. I'm a smart person. I know things that you don't know, and you know things that I don't know. You might teach me, so I want you in the room. If you have to go to the resolve room, I don't get to be your teacher. Uh, but, you know, some kids, it's, it's they're I say, you're bullying me. You're forcing me to send you to the resolve room. I, I want to teach you and, and I, you won't let me, please let me. Uh, but I know in, in my context, I hold on to kids way past when I should because I'm trying to give them a chance to regulate themselves. And they've pretty much shown me, I can't regulate myself. I need an intervention here. You know, it's like the way that some, maybe, maybe a three-year-old would need a timeout or a big hug, you know. Uh, so I, but that's what I want to teach. You know, the only discipline that matters in the long run is self-discipline. You know, and we want you to write your own ticket in the world. We want you to be whatever it is. We want you to walk down the path of your choosing. We want you to know that there's a million paths you can choose. And by the time you have to make that choice, 
you've sampled a few of them. Um, you know, but I've got my little, you know, 90 minutes a day with them and then they're on the, you know. And they're gonna, you know, they're gonna learn with or without me. Uh, we, we had a workshop at our school to say, imagine this student who says, why do I need to learn this? What would you say? Well, my answer is you don't. You know, you don't need to learn this. I think you're fully equipped right now to walk out in the world. And if you had to survive with nobody and nothing, you'd figure out how to do it. But if you trust me a little bit, maybe I can get you into the bigger league. The AAA player wants to make the major leagues. The major league player wants to make the all-star team. Hang out with me a little bit, and you might have what it takes to make the all-star team. But if you don't, you've got what it takes already. You're going to make it with or without me. Yeah, that's that's such a great great way of putting it too. Because yeah. again, you're you're always giving those students that choice, and I think that that continues to come back. Your teaching style is very much about building that community, providing opportunities for choice, and I think that that's such a great model, um, especially for people that maybe do have behavior issues in their classroom right now, and they're trying to figure out, you know, how do I solve this problem and also teach my class. Yeah, yeah. I, I still, though, my, my favorite was at the, the all-girls school when, uh, you know, where I am, you feel like learning something, come find me. Otherwise, you know, go read a book or take a nap and don't get in any fights. Uh, you know, <laughs> that, that, was, that was the most fun for me. And I saw students who did things that you would have thought were impossible. Uh, you know, I had a girl who had clearly a learning disability, but somebody had taught her how to do math up to a certain point. So she wanted in the worst way to do algebra. And so, you know, in order to do algebra, you kind of have to be able to do mathematics. So you have to do a little bit of arithmetic. You need to do some multiplication. And she had figured out that, you know, like seven times nine equals seven plus seven plus seven plus seven, nine times. But she wanted to learn algebra because the bigger kids were doing it. If the bigger kids could do it, she could do it too. I'm like, okay, well then, you know, and I have math teachers. She's not ready for algebra. Like, if that's what she wants to learn, you know she can't learn algebra without, you know, doing mathematics and multiplication. So we're going to we're going to get there. She's just going to go through her little loop of doing it. Um, and it was fun as can be. Uh, I mean, I have a million stories uh, of amazing things that I've seen kids do that they weren't supposed to be able to do. So on the, on the contrary, we always ask our guests, what is maybe a, it could be either a positive or not so positive memory that you have from your own school experience that has made an impact on you. So is there something that stands out that maybe even led you to want to be a teacher? Uh, well, geez, we've been talking for a while. I'm afraid I'm gonna run out of time uh, because this story might be a little bit lengthy. I, I'm the descendant of Slovakian immigrants. My, my grandmother, Maria Baronkai, her maiden name was Sokolowski. In what's now the Slovak Republic, she lived in a little farming village, and she was one of the few kids in the village that actually liked to go to school. And uh, 
when she came to the United States at the age of 17, she thought she was coming over here to get an American education, and she was met at the train station by her husband. She was sent over here as part of an arranged marriage, and she didn't know it. Nobody bothered telling her. And now this is her telling a story. She said that when she met my grandfather at the train station, he said, you don't speak English, you don't have any money, and you're not that good looking. You don't have to come with me, but you could do worse. So she <laughs> went with him. But, you know, the, the, my grandmother could have been a philosopher. She could have been an engineer. She purports that during World War II, when the women went to work in the steel mills, she was the first female crane operator in the history of United States steel. And I got to go into the U.S. Steel Archives to see if I could find any evidence of that, but, you know, they didn't keep record of things like that. So she, she was a brilliant person. And in her older years, I got her a book for her birthday. And when I gave it to her, she looked at it and said, what am I supposed to do with this? I was like, what do you mean? It's a book. You read it. She said, I can't read English. Like, you're kidding me. Uh, smartest person I ever knew. And she and, and her colleagues, they, she managed a little tailor shop uh, in a discount clothing store Hungarians, Italians, Greeks, uh, you know, all different ethnicities. And what they all had in common is they would go home and watch public television and then come back to work the next day and argue about it. And the, the one word that I heard most often was propaganda, you know, propaganda. Uh, so in their little pigeon English, they would be able to discuss the issues of the day. And I just thought, oh, if only I could record all of this or transcribe all this. These are the smartest people I've ever known. And none of them are native English speakers. None of them probably could even write. So, uh, you know, that's sort of where my love of learning comes from, is from my grandmother, who passed it on to my mother. And one of the souvenirs I have of my mother is she has a teaching certificate from Allegheny County in, in the Pittsburgh area and this little wooden thing that says Miss Baronke. And so she apparently was a teacher. And when I was little, again, I mentioned that, you know, I went to Catholic school. My mother taught catechism, you know, taught religion lessons for uh, mentally retarded adults. And because her thing was, I want them to be able to get the sacraments. They can't get the sacraments if they can't make their con. So the whole thing, you know, my mother was a teacher. And, and I know now as an adult, that she wanted more than anything in the world to be a teacher. She could have been a doctor, but she ended up being a nurse because in that generation, women were nurses, not doctors. And, and when my family disintegrated, one of the last things she said to me before she kind of went into hiding uh, was, you know, Bobby, I know you're very smart. Whatever you do, bring home, home good grades. Uh, so that, that's, that's where my education thing comes from. But, you know, nobody in my little world when I was a teenager, you know, I didn't even know how to fill out a college application. It was a, a kid from high school. When the applications for the University of Pittsburgh were due, they would send out two, they sent out two copies. And I think a kid named Vic Magnotti made a mistake on his first copy and threw it in the trash. And I think the kid's name was either John Garlick or Eric Hubbard, but one of my friends made me pull that application out of the trash and fill it out so that I could apply to go to college. That's how I ended up going to college. That saved my life, pulling that application out of the trash. That kid 
you know, another 17 year old telling me you're going to college. Uh, you know, who knows what, I'd probably still play in a rock and roll band, but uh, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have had all this amazing uh, experience as, as a learner, you know. Yeah, sometimes it's just the little things that, that we remember, those little moments. <laughs> and, and then just the, the, the luckiness of when I was a freshman, they had this experimental program when I was a, a first year student at Pitt. You know, this it was like no student was better prepared to go into an open classroom environment than me because I spent my entire high school life hiding in the library, you know, getting my name on the absent list so that nobody knew that I was there not going to class and just what did you do in physics today what did you do in in uh english today what did you do in social studies today and teaching it to myself without a teacher uh, you know i was pretty lucky things turn into their opposites <laughs> that's pretty amazing so we would be remiss if we didn't um i know you've referenced it a number of times and although this podcast is all about education we cannot uh, miss out on the opportunity to hear a little bit about your band and your musical uh, career. Well, the you know the, for, for me the, the the two things go together. But uh, when I was a kid, you know, the first time I heard music, like what if you want to grow up and do something fun, what could possibly be more fun than playing music? And then, uh, you know, I'm pretty talented as a writer and started getting encouragement as a writer probably around the time maybe I was in third grade. I knew that I could make people feel something with, with the written word. Uh, so I thought of myself as a writer. Uh, but, you know, poetry is a cottage industry for college professors. If you want to have an impact on the world, you want the broadest possible audience. You don't want to be you know, communicating with a bunch of uh, college professors. You want to reach real people and real people listen to music. Real people might even go to plays, but they probably watch TV. So for me, the highest form of communication known to man was, was rock and roll music. I got that from Patti Smith, you know, because whatever Patti Smith said or whatever Lou Reed said or whatever Bob Dylan said, that was the gospel to me. Uh, so, you know, when I was at Pitt, now the other weird thing that I haven't mentioned is when I was in college, I got cancer. And again, things turned into their opposites, not knowing if I was going to live or die. Uh, me and my roommate kind of looked at each other and was like, man, we need to start a band. Because I did not want to go to my grave not having done the one thing that I most wanted to do. Punk rock had just happened. So people like me with no experience had a license to get on stage. Uh, and after doing that for a couple of years, I figured, okay, I'm going to teach through telling stories. I'm going to tell stories through songs. And my vehicle is The Little Wretches. So if you're interested in my music, look up The Little Wretches. We're everywhere. I love that so much. I grew up um, as a singer and, and a dancer. Um, and one of the things that very early on recently, actually, I found a picture of my first stage performance at a Six Flags with a band, um, I think ah. like a trio. I was like four years old or something. I thought my first performance was around the age eight, but apparently this four-year-old thing happened earlier. And I just, I just know, I was talking to a friend, it's just always been the way that I connected with the world. And even in my writing now, which is not songwriting, I often write in sort of a prose form first and then turn it into paragraph form for other 
um, mechanisms because I think somewhere in me is that musical connection to the writing of the way that a song flows and the way that thoughts can be put together in that way. So I'm, I, um, I also believe that highly influenced my own education background and the way that I think about language and words and, and kind of um, thoughts and emotions all rolled into, you know, how do you express that? And I love the way you said you wanted to draw people's emotions out through, um, through writing. And I, that's something that I is really, that I'm really passionate about too. Uh, well, I know we're getting to the end, but, uh, you know, I could go into my whole thing about teaching writing because that's that's another weird thing, too, is it generally in life when you have nothing to say, you say nothing. But in school, they tell you you have to write maybe when you have nothing to say, uh, you, you know, it's like, come on, uh, I'll, I'll write something when I have something to say. So my whole thing is let's give people something to talk about and then you'll have a reason to want to write. Yeah, that's a, that is a really good way of putting it too, um, and that aligns kind of with your whole behavior strategy of you know if, if we're not all sitting at our desk quietly, um, some of those that creativity can come out. Oh my! Sure. I enjoy this conversation. I'm going to be sad when it ends. I know. <laughs> well, in that on that point, we probably need to to wrap it up. But as we start to close. Um, what advice would you give in general to kind of educators out there that want to that want to do something a different way that want to bring in um you know the the real core the heart of learning into into what they're doing where would they start what are some of the what pieces of advice would you give them well just one trust that every human being is a natural learner you know, you're hardwired to learn. It's not that hard. Everybody is a learner uh, and everybody is will pursue the learning that empowers them. Uh, so one, that's just a given. You know, the, the big thing in education, we need to teach critical thinking. How preposterous is that? That assumes that people are not already engaging in critical thinking. You're a natural critical thinker. You were born critically thinking. And you will continue to do so. So one, just, just trust that people actually do want to learn. And the other thing that I would say is there's no more unnatural feeling for a human being than powerlessness. And a lot of times in a classroom setting, you're competing with the student because you want to be in control and the students want to be in control. The only thing you can control is yourself. You can't control anything else. You, you can't control what happens to you but maybe you can control how you respond to it. So just focus on yourself. Uh, that's, that's it. And then try new things and expect yourself to fail. You know, what happens might not be what you expect it to happen. Maybe if you learn the discipline of going into things without expectations uh, and just seeing what's there. Uh, ooh, I, I live in the Garden of Eden right now, but I wonder what's on the other side of that river. Wonder what's on the other side of that mountain. You know, why did humans ever leave Africa? Because we've got this curiosity that just will make us do things. Uh, so just follow your curiosity and trust that, that your students are, or you know, they're they're made out of the same fabric you're made out of. They they're curious. So go, you know, follow the trail wherever it leads. And don't quit. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been 
so much fun. Tell people how they can get in touch with you if they want. You said you're everywhere for your music, but how else might they get in touch with you otherwise? Uh, well, if you wanted to find me, I, I've been using my middle name a lot, Robert Andrew Wagner, to differentiate, differentiate myself from the thousands of Robert Wagners out there. Uh, so you can just look up Robert Andrew Wagner. I'm probably going to be somewhere up there in the hits or look for the little wretches. Uh, we're, we're very, I'm personally very accessible. If you know, find me on Facebook, find me on Instagram or find us or find us wherever. If you uh, post something, you'll probably get a personal response from me. You know, my personal email, you know, all my stuff's out there. I'm, I mean, I'm not going to give you my email and my phone number, but if you go to my Facebook page, it's there, you know. Yeah, so Perfect. just look us up. The Little Wretches. All right. Well, I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. This has been another episode of Dissecting Education, a production of In Pursuit Research. Outcomes-driven, impact-focused. What are you in pursuit of? Thank you.